Get to the Root of It is a podcast for the curious health seekers hoping to figure out the root causes of symptoms in order to live a happier and healthier life. We look through the lens of functional and integrative medicine, occupational therapy, yoga, health coaching, and environmental wellness in hopes of sharing valuable ideas that may help someone in some way. We will take deep dives into root causes of autoimmunity and all types of dementia and cognitive decline in order to increase our understanding so that we can reduce our risk and optimize health for ourselves and our loved ones. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical care. We recommend speaking to your own practitioner with any medical questions or health concerns. Hello, I am Laurel Brennan. Welcome to Get to the Root of It. I am here with Angela Taylor, a licensed dietitian nutritionist. Welcome, Angela. Hi, Laurel. Thanks for having me here today. Yeah, it is a pleasure. So I know you are working on your doctorate in clinical nutrition. You've been an educator at um, Johns Hopkins and another university. Where is it? Nova Southeastern Medical School. It's in Florida. Awesome. So Uh, I have heard you present before. I love your style. And you're here again to present today about hypothyroidism. So do you want to just jump right in? So for those of you who are only listening, if you want to see the slides, um, check it out on YouTube. But so you can get all the details. But Angela um, will share what she knows about hypothyroidism. I'm ready to learn. All right. Thanks, Laurel, for that lovely introduction. So I'm going to go ahead and share my screen here. And here we go. All right. So today we're talking about nutritional approaches for hypothyroidism because I am a licensed dietitian nutritionist. So that's that's my bag, baby. <laughs> okay. Hypothyroidism is defined as the inadequate synthesis of T4 and T3 hormones needed for metabolic processes within the body. And here's some quick facts and figures for you. One in eight women will develop a thyroid disorder. 20 million Americans have some form of thyroid condition. 95% of the time when they find little nodules in your thyroid, they're benign. And women are five to eight times more likely to develop a thyroid condition than men. So I literally just saw this magazine in the grocery store today, and I just picked it up because I was intrigued by it. It's called The Thyroid Cure, and it's pretty cool, actually. I I really thought that they did a a good job. Um, And there was one little article that caught my attention that I just wanted to share with you. The woman said, I wish I hadn't had my thyroid removed. So I encourage you to pick this up um, next time you're in the grocery store, if it's of interest to you and read her story. Um, But um, right now we're going to talk about some nutritional approaches that may help to prevent that from happening for you. Okay. So the etiology or the cause, the root cause, root causology, the root cause... (laughs) The root cause for hypothyroidism, well, iodine deficiency is like the leading cause of hypothyroidism, and we call that primary hypothyroidism. 
around the globe. Okay. Now there are countries though, where people do get enough iodine in their diets, uh, but they still have hypothyroidism. So in these countries where the population is iodine sufficient, the most common cause of hypothyroidism is Hashimoto's disease. And in case you didn't know, Hashimoto's is the autoimmune destruction of the thyroid gland. And then finally, our next leading cause after those two would be iatrogenic causes. So that means, for example, radioactive iodine, which is given sometimes by doctors to destroy the thyroid gland, surgery to take it out, and medications. Certain medications are actually, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Life happens. A dog barks, the phone rings. There we go. Phone won't <laughs> ring anymore. Okay. So I'm going to give you a nice splice point here. And after those two causes, our next leading cause of hypothyroidism is from iatrogenic causes, including radioactive iodine. Sometimes doctors will give radioactive iodine to destroy the thyroid gland, surgery to surgically remove the thyroid, and certain medications can actually be damaging to the thyroid. This is not exhaustive, but including amiodarone and lithium. So lithium's common, higher dose lithium is commonly given for psych certain psychiatric conditions. External beam radiation, uh, so whenever you go get an x-ray done, please cover your thyroid. And overconsumption of goitrogenic foods. We will talk about those in just a little bit. All right, so how are you going to get your diagnosis of being hypothyroid? Well, it's, it is diagnosed using labs, okay? So the labs that doctors use are an elevated TSH and a low T4. Now we can debate till the cows come home what those ranges should be, okay? In the old days, we used to say that the cutoff was if your TSH was above five, then you had hypothyroidism, okay? But increasingly, those ranges, those lab ranges are getting lower and lower as I think they should be, okay? So functionally, um, you know, we definitely would be looking, We, if we see your TSH above three, Functionally, I'm going to be concerned. Okay. So, um, but yes, as I said, those cutoff ranges are being debated. Everyone debates. Okay. But now let's talk about another category called subclinical hypothyroidism. Okay. So I don't know if my mouse sh is showing here. Laurel, is my mouse showing? It is. Good. Okay, great. All right. So overt hypothyroidism is what we just talked about, where the TSH is definitely high and the T4 is definitely too low. But now we're in this weird gray area called subclinical hypothyroidism. And what it is, is the TSH is saying, the TSH is your body's call for a T4. It, your, your brain is saying, it's the, the brain is sending the TSH, okay? And the brain is saying, I need more T4, please. This is TSH speaking. Please make more T4. Thank you. All right. And for a while, your body is able to hear this getting higher and higher, louder and louder TSH signal, and it's able to keep up. And it's sort of like whipping a horse that's tired, okay? <coughs> so for a while, your T4 looks okay. But eventually, 
your body, your T4, just your, your thyroid just gets tired. It can't do it anymore. Okay. And then your T4 will start to drop and your TSH of course will keep going up because the brain is still like, I need more T4. This is TH TSH speaking. Come on, give it to me. All right. And that is what is happening here on this page. All righty. So let's just break this down a little bit more. Up to 60% of cases over five years, depending on TSH and antithyroid antibody status, will be down here in this region, either euthyroid, which is good, okay, subclinical hypothyroid, which is uh, getting there. And then finally, when the thyroid just can't take it anymore, can't keep up, now we have one to 5% of cases per year over here in this overt hypothyroidism side. All right, so that was um, a lot of information on diagnosis, but I just wanted to make sure everybody was clear on it. We're going to move on. Laurel, any questions about any of that? Um, I just want to share a little something. It depends really on your doctor, on your provider, whether or not they will intervene if it's low. It, so I have had some doctors say, um, generally your subclinical clinical hyperthyroid you can do something or you can do nothing. And then I've had other doctors say, absolutely, you shouldn't do anything. It's not, it's not low enough to intervene. So as you said, people de will debate until the cows come home when you intervene and when you don't. So I'm yeah. um, interested in hearing more about your root cause analysis. So um, maybe there's things we can do that aren't medicine. Maybe. Maybe. Hmm. Okay, so let's take a look. All right, there's one more thing I got to cover though, and that's autoimmune antibody labs, okay? So whenever you run a thyroid panel, ideally you would run a complete thyroid panel, alrighty? So if all you run is TSH, you are just scratching the surface, okay? You can't really get an idea of why, the root causality of why this is going on if all you have is TSH to look at, okay? You really need more info. You need at the very least TSH and T4, and I believe you also need come on, antibody labs, okay? So if you see anti-TPO antibodies above the range, which again, the ranges can be debated till the cows come home, but let's say above 30, okay? Then we would say, oh, well, you've got something going on, okay? And it may manifest as either hypothyroidism, today's talk, which is low thyroid, or it might even manifest initially as hyperthyroid, okay? But we're not talking about hyperthyroid today, all right? You might also see TG, anti-TG antibodies. Well, that's definitely hypothyroid, okay? And just in case you're curious, here's a couple more Graves' disease, hyper, too much thyroid hormone, a couple more that would fall in this category. All right, so now that we've discussed that, let's move on. Okay, so first things first. Before, now I can't prescribe medication. I am a soon to be a doctor of clinical nutrition, okay? But I'm currently a licensed dietitian nutritionist. So I definitely cannot and never will be able to prescribe anything, including I can't prescribe thyroid hormone. But you know what? That doesn't bother me because I got a whole bunch of other tricks up my sleeve that I would want to try first anyways, okay? So first things first, before I get into the special, specific, magical thyroid nutrients, I would actually just start with the basics. So these are the basics that I go over with everyone who comes to see me in my clinical practice. And the unusual thing about this handout is that because it's a ladder, hey, Laurel, where do you start to climb a ladder? Do you start to climb it at the top or the bottom usually? 
Definitely for safety at the bottom. <laughs> okay. All right. So yeah, so I made this handout because I'm crafty. All right. And as you can see, I wrote start here. So yeah, so we actually read this handout from the bottom. So the first thing I look at is people's hydration. And then I ask them to track their food intake with a very handy free software program called chronometer.com. And then after I have them tracking their food, then I can examine the data. Show me the data. All righty. And I can look at for just for starters, the amount of protein they're eating and also the amount of fats and carbs. And then I can start to get into, are you getting enough fruit and veg every day? And then I might ask, how's the pooping? Are we pooping every day? Uh, or if not, then we need to make sure we get things moving. And now I can really continue to look at that chronometer data and I can see, oh, are we getting 2000 milligrams of fish oil every day? And then from there, we just go up, 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 sleep, movement, and then fancy labs up after that. Okay. So I would always start here before I did anything. Laurel, you got any questions about this? No, just for the people who don't have the slides in front of them. When you say here, that's always the bottom, right? The water. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Laura. Good, good How call. How much are you drinking? Well, in the clinic, we usually would tell people to drink half their weight in ounces. So let me break that down. All right. If somebody weighs 200 pounds, what's half of 200, Laura? Uh, 100. It's a tough yeah. one for me. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. So that means if somebody weighs 200 pounds, we're going to ask them to try and drink a hundred ounces of water every day. So you just go hop on the scale and figure out what your number is. Okay. Pretty simple. And you would want to measure it in some way. So if you have, you know, your favorite glass or your favorite water bottle or whatever, like measure it and find out how much it holds. And when you drink, drink it all the way down and then fill it up all the way to the top. And that way you can track better how much water you're actually drinking. All right, cool. All right, so now we're gonna move on. So now we get to the magical thyroid nutrients. After we've covered those bases, we can start focusing in on the, the thing that you're like concerned about, which is your thyroid, okay? So as I said, the brain makes TSH and TSH says, please make T4. This is TH speaking. Please make TSH speaking. Please make T4. All right. So ideally, when the thyroid gets that message, it's going to start cracking out some T4. In order to do that, though, it's going to need some raw ingredients. All right. You cannot bake a cake without the ingredients. Well, you cannot make T4 without the ingredients. Here they are. You need iron, iodine, tyrosine. So that's an amino acid that comes from eating protein, zinc, selenium, vitamin E, vitamin B2, B3, B6, C, and D. So you need all those things. And it's very common in my clinical practice that when I have people start tracking their food, I can see in chronometer exactly how much they're getting every day. And they are not even meeting the government minimums for any of these nutrients. Okay. So I definitely, I would start there. All right. Especially in women. What do you think of these would be the most likely thing that women would be low in Laurel? What do you think? If they're menstruating, probably iron. Yeah, right on. 
Exactly. All right. So when you measure an iron panel, you want to get serum iron, but also TIBC. So those are the, that's what carries iron around in your blood and ferritin. That's the storage iron. Okay. So normally when I have all three of these in an, in an iron panel, that gives me the whole story that I need. And I'll zoom in on ferritin and I'll say, hmm, this ferritin looks low to me. It's very common. Almost everybody who walks to the door has low ferritin. Okay, so uh, again, the levels are debated till the cows come home. Uh, most women feel their best when their ferritin is up around 90. Some people think that's a smidge too high, but most, I'm gonna go with most women feel best when their ferritin's around 90, okay? Most women that walk through my door are 30 or below. I've actually seen a woman with the ferritin of two. It is no wonder that she was tired, <laughs> okay? So, um, so we would start there. Okay. And, um, to get a person's iron status back up, well, we could urge, encourage them to eat red meat. Hey, Laura, what type of red meat do you think I would encourage them to eat though? Um, grass fed organic. Yeah. So do you think I should be sending them to Costco to get the cheapest possible ground beef off the shelf? Probably not. Cause it's probably full of hormones and pesticides and, and low quality fat. Yeah. What do you think the cheap ground beef, what do you think those cows were eating? Probably corn. And they have, um, I've seen a farm where they just had the cows standing in the same place for years. Like they just stand there. They don't get any movement. They don't get to eat grass. It's very sad. Yeah. Yeah. Avoid that. <laughs> yeah. So if you can spend an extra dollar per pound or maybe an extra $2 per pound, I don't know. It depends where you shop. I buy all my meat directly from the farmer. I just go to the farmer's market. So that's the cheapest, directest way to say, hey, are your cows grass-fed? Why, yes, they are. Okay, I'd like to order three pounds of ground beef, please. Okay, um, so that's the way I do it. I go to the farmer's market. But um, anywho, yes, so do that. All right, so now that we've got the raw ingredients that we need, by the way, sea salt, Himalayan salt, white iodized salt. Let's talk about salt for a sec because we already said what is our actual primary reason for hypothyroidism around the world. What is it, Laurel? We already said it, right? Low iodine. I'm interested in what you have to say here. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so the government realized this many years ago when people started developing something called goiter, where their thyroid would get really big. Okay. And so at least in the US, they mandated that white salt had to be iodized before it was sold. So they started fortifying the US food supply by putting iodine into the white salt, okay? So whenever you buy iodized salt, I know we, we're kind of like us, you know, health foodies, we're like, oh, but Himalayan pink salt, like that's the good stuff. And I agree, it's got lovely amounts of trace minerals, but it's not fortified with iodine. And a lot of people aren't getting enough iodine if they're only consuming the pink salt. So just something to think about. Um, there's lots of ways to get your iodine. You could eat seaweed snacks. You can buy a bottle of iodine and maybe dilute it into water and just spray iodine on your body. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, you could, you could actually buy iodized salt and use that. Um, you could take a, a multivitamin that has a little tiny bit of iodine in it. Like there's lots of ways to get your iodine, but you know, it's probably a good idea to like, as I said, track your food and chronometer. I track my food every day. Okay doesn't really take me that long. I'm pretty good at it by now. It takes me five minutes a day, probably. Okay. Um, just make sure you're getting enough iodine and that will go 
so far towards your overall health, not only for your thyroid, but breast health, like just cancer prevention, getting enough iodine is super important. All right, enough said about that. Any, any other questions, Laurel, on that one? No, that was really helpful though. I, okay. I, I do eat seaweed, but I don't track it. So, I, and I don't have iodized salt because I'm one of those have to have Himalayan pink sea salt person. So I appreciate that advice. I'm going to do a chronometer. Put yeah. It it's tricky because iodine is not tracked in the food very well. Mm -hmm. So it will warn you when you, when you turn on your chronometer and you say, yes, do track iodine for me, please. It'll say, Hey, just so you know, that data is kind of sparse in our database. You'd be like, that's cool. Because when you put in your seaweed snacks, as double check to make sure whatever your seaweed snack is actually tracks the iodine content for you because you're not going to find iodine in a bunch of foods anyway okay yeah. so anyway um, and i've never heard of the spray you can literally spray it on your skin yeah so people will buy this like detoxified iodine or they might buy lugols um and you can i don't use it straight it would really stain your skin and plus that's way more than you need if you use it straight okay. so um I just dilute it in some water and then I have a little sprayer bottle with mostly water and a little bit of iodine and I just spray it on myself. Um, a functional doc suggested this to me years ago. This is for breast health. So that's a different topic than, than hypothyroidism, but I'm just going to go ahead and say this. She said that dense breasts, breast density is the precursor to breast cancer and iodine reduces breast density. So she said, anytime your breasts feel dense, you should take some of this iodine water spray. Well, she said, just paint your breast with iodine, but I thought that through and I said, that's too much. It's too high of a dose. So I sort of changed what she said a little bit and I'm applying the diluted iodine water spray okay. to my breast, just rubbing it in. And definitely the next, I do that before I go to bed because I don't want to stain my clothes for the day. Um, when I wake up the next morning, everything's nice and soft and supple the way it should be. So, so yeah, I feel like a lot of, this is a hypothesis. I hypothesize that a lot of breast cancer development might be reduced if people were to optimize their iodine status. It's a hypothesis. Nice. Okay. All right, cool. All right, so let's move on to the other side of this slide. All right, we're gonna spend a lot of time on this slide. As you can see, there's, there's a lot here. All right, now, even if you have all the ingredients you need to make T4, well, unfortunately, there are some other things, toxins and lifestyle choices, that can mess up the making of T4, that will inhibit its synthesis, all right? So stress, infection, trauma, radiation, and certain medications, as we already talked about. Fluoride, now fluoride is found very commonly where in the United States, Laurel? In the water, my township puts it in. Yeah, so yeah. you might wanna give that some thought, everybody. How are you? Like there's a lot of debate, like, like some scientists will say, oh, well, you need fluoride for strong teeth. Well, other nutrition experts will say, well, no, you don't, <laughs> but you do need, you know, some, lots of good nutrition for strong teeth, but fluoride is not necessarily necessary for strong teeth. Okay. So, and it, unfortunately it's hard to filter out of your water. Like if you do reverse osmosis, you can get the fluoride out, but even one of those Brita filters, and unless you buy one that specifically says it takes the fluoride out, it can't get it out because fluoride's a really small particle. So anyway, something to think about. Um, I don't necessarily recommend drinking RO water because all the reverse osmosis water, because all the minerals are taken out of it 
And that can then, of course, lead to bone problems and osteoporosis. It's really a catch-22. Right now, I have settled on drinking spring water. So I have, I, I have spring water delivered to my house from a really clean spring. The company brings it to my house in the big truck once a month with the enormous five-gallon jugs. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of a conundrum here about what to do about drinking water. But at least here's the information. Um, I do brush at least with a non-fluoride toothpaste, so at least I'm minimizing my exposure that way. All right, so let's move on. Toxins we want to avoid. Pesticides, so that would mean eating what kind of food if we want to avoid pesticides, Laurel? Organic, especially the dirty dozen. Yeah, good call. Yeah, and then we would want to avoid mercury. So where might people commonly have mercury stores in their body? Um, in their their silver fillings. Yeah, and there you go. I've heard of um, people who really love sushi and raw fish who've had really high levels of mercury as well. True, true that. Um, I will say that <clears throat> on this note, if you decide to get your silver fillings taken out, please go to a biological dentist who has all the special equipment to like the, the special fan to suck the vapor away while they're drilling it and uses like the dental dam to make sure you don't swallow any of it. So don't just go to a regular dentist to get those taken out. Um, and also you'd want to take some special nutritional supplements to bind any mercury that gets liberated in this process so you can poop it out. So that's number one, if you get your silver fillings removed. Number two, if you are a fan of fish and sushi, which really are great brain foods, um, there certainly are steps you can take so that you can help your body eliminate the mercury better so you can keep enjoying your fish, okay? Because the body should be able to hopefully keep up with the amount that's coming in, but that's bio-individual. If somebody's that really curious about this, they could get a quick, quick silver mercury tri-test and that can help inform them of their current levels and how well are they detoxifying what's coming in. All right, moving on, more toxins. Cadmium, sadly, if you live near an incinerator, if, if your municipality burns your trash, um, you might have elevated cadmium in the air and lead. So um, a common source of lead is actually in older homes in the paint, in the, in the dust, okay? All right. And finally, if someone has an autoimmune disease, including celiac, that may inhibit the proper making of T4. All right, Laurel, that's that section, the top two sections. Any questions? No, that's super helpful. Thank you. Oh, cool. All right. So now that we have this T4, we are not home free. Mm -mm, not at all. Okay. Because believe it or not, even though we measure T4, that's not the active form of thyroid hormone in the body, sadly. The active form of thyroid hormone is T3, okay? So in order for thyroid hormone to get used, it has to be turned from T4 into T3. Alrighty? Hey, Laurel, can you read here? What are the two nutrients we need to facilitate that conversion of T4 to T3? What's that say? Selenium, Brazil nuts, anyone, and zinc. Right on. Excellent. All right. So we got to make sure we have enough selenium and enough zinc. All right. Now, um, there's this concept called hormesis where we want exactly the right amount of a good thing. All right. So let me try and explain this to you. If I have a headache and I take no aspirin, I still have a headache. If I take two aspirin, awesome. That's the sweet spot. My headache goes away. If I take the whole bottle of aspirin, Laurel, what do you think will happen? Bad things. 
<laughs> bad things. You'll probably die. Okay. <laughs> so same thing with selenium. It has a sweet spot. So if you look at the RDA for selenium, um, or even if you go a little bit above it, I would say you probably don't want to consume more than 180, I believe it's micrograms of selenium in a day. So don't go crazy with saying, um, Angela and Laurel said to eat Brazil nuts. Like don't just hoover down a bunch of Brazil nuts every day. Cause you're going to end up with too much selenium. I put a, a single Brazil nut into chronometer and one nut was enough to fulfill my needs for the day. Okay. Um, another expert who knows even way more than I do about nutrition, his name's Dr. Brian Walsh. He did some digging through the research and he discovered that people who consume too much selenium end up having high blood sugar. So there you go. So just hit the sweet spot on the selenium. Zinc, I think people probably could go above the RDA pretty safely, but I have driven myself into copper deficiency by taking too much zinc. So if you do decide to take a lot of zinc, you're going to need to take just a little bit of copper to balance it out because otherwise you're going to feel tired because copper is needed to carry iron around in the bloodstream. Okay. Um, so that is that. That's how we can improve our conversion from T4 to T3. All right. But we're not, not done yet. We've only talked about three out of the five boxes on this page. All right. So now we're going to hop over to lifestyle factors that can mess up the conversion. Alrighty. So when that conversion T4 to T3 gets messed up, a lot of times it goes the wrong way. All right. So it's like a fork in the road. And sometimes T4 picks the wrong fork, picks the wrong side of the path. Sometimes T4 goes over here to this thing called RT3. Hey, Laurel, you want to tell us what RT3 stands for? I don't know. You're going to tell me. Okay. It's reverse T3. Oh, yes. I did know that. It's evil T3 because because <laughs> <laughs> it sits in the receptor, but it doesn't do the work. So it just sits there. It just takes up useless space. Okay. So we do not want that. We want our T3 receptors to be occupied by honest to goodness, real T3 that's working. Okay. So here's what's going to increase T4 going down the wrong pathway, going down the wrong road. Okay. Stress trauma, a low calorie diet. So there's this concept called BMR. It's your basal metabolic rate. That is how many calories you burn in a day just by like sitting on the couch. If you were to lay in bed all day or sit on the couch all day and do nothing, just be a couch potato, you would still burn. For me, it's like around 1200 calories for free. Pretty cool, huh? Okay. But here's the problem. And then when you exercise, then you add or just walk around and live your life, then you, you burn more calories than that every day. Okay. So the moral of the story is that when people go on a diet, a low calorie diet, and they slash their calories that they're eating, it would be a really good idea to eat at least your BMR. So for me, I have to eat at least 1200 calories a day, or else I might start making a lot of RT3 because I'll stress my body out. It'll put my body into starvation mode. All right. So enough about that. Um, if people have inflammatory conditions that can increase RT3, toxins, infections, if they have liver or kidney dysfunction and certain medications. All right. So that's the fourth box of, out of five. Any questions, Laurel? No, but it just has me um, processing some decisions that I've made in the past before I knew more. <laughs> 
And um, when I went on a low calorie or intermittent fasting, soon after that, I had some thyroid problems. So I wonder if there was a connection. Yeah, that's a really yeah. good question. And I spoke to um, another doc. I like to always give credit. So it sounds like I'm name dropping, like I know all these fancy people, but honestly, I'm just trying to not steal their ideas. I just want to share, give them credit. Okay. So there's this Dr. Colbert. I think his first name's Donald. Not sure. Uh, but Dr. Colbert, he's an expert on keto. And so I saw him at a conference and we were talking about the keto diet and he was of course trying to sell me some of his products. And he said, Oh, Hey, by the way, Angela, if you decide to do keto, probably your thyroid function is going to decline and you will probably need to take a little bit of thyroid replacement hormone to keep your thyroid where it's supposed to be while you're doing keto. And I was like, what? Like that was really revolutionary information that I had not heard before. So. I did disregard his advice. <laughs> uh, so I did not go on thyroid replacement hormone for whatever reason. That just wasn't something I wanted to do at the time. Um, but nowadays when I'm recommending, you know, weight loss diets to people, I am recommending that they eat at least their BMR. And unless they really are wanting to be on keto for some super important reason, like cancer would be a good reason or maybe brain function. Um, then I, I suggest that maybe we go for a low cal low carb approach, but maybe not all the way into like heavy ketosis if they're concerned about thyroid function. Okay. Now people who have cancer or, um, you know, severe brain problems that for whatever medical reason need to be, or seizures, you know, need to be on keto. Well, then it might be worth it for them to say, all right, I'm going to do this keto thing and I'm going to take a little thyroid replacement hormone. So that's like a special case scenario. Right. All right. Cool. Awesome. Thanks for asking that question, Laura. That was really handy. Anything else on that fourth box? Mm -hmm. All right. Then we'll move on to fifth box. All yeah. right. Here we go. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the fifth box is, okay, now I've made all this wonderful good T3. Now it needs to get into the cell. Okay. So fact, there are some nutritional factors that can improve what we call cellular sensitivity for the T3 to actually get into the cell. And that's vitamin A and zinc and also exercise. Okay. All right. So there we have broken down this whole complicated diagram. Right, so any I, last questions? I do have a question. So under the factors that increase the, or increase the conversion of T4 to reverse T3, which is not what we want to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, the liver and kidney dysfunction is on there. So how do we know if we have liver or kidney dysfunction? Are there things that we can do to optimize liver and kidney function? What would you suggest there? Okay. That's a really good question. So um, I'm not an expert on liver and kidney dysfunction. I will just put that right out there. But if I wanted to, at least as a non-expert, take a look at somebody's liver and kidney function, I would just look at their very basic labs. So I would look at AST and ALT. I like to see those below 20. I don't often see them that low, but especially people who drink alcohol. But um, ideally, I would love to see somebody's AST and ALT below 20. That would indicate to me that their liver is functioning very well. Okay. If their liver, liver function is elevated, 
I might ask about recent toxin exposure or long-term toxin exposure, including certain vaccines uh, may trigger. I've seen this in my patients that uh, vaccines can send liver enzymes very high. Um, and then for kidney function, I would look at something called EGFR. So that's an estimated filtration. So it's estimated how well the kidneys are working. So EGFR, we have all these different numbers, different stages of kidney disease. The lab says if you're over 60, then that's then your kidneys are working pretty well. Okay. So the higher above 60, the better when it comes for kidney function. Um, but if somebody's kidneys, EGFR is below 60, then I would definitely be worried that their kidneys were not working very well. And then of course, there's a whole bunch of different things that we would look at if we wanted to optimize someone's liver and kidney function, which I don't think we really have time to go into all that today, but I'll say the number one thing for liver that I've had good success with is actually gluten-free. And I wrote up a, uh, a case report on that and I presented it at the Johns Hopkins research retreat uh, actually last week. So um, for sure, when this, when this woman went gluten-free, she went to the Mayo Clinic, she went all over the place. She had elevated liver enzymes for years and um, once she went gluten-free, she was strict. She did not like cheat and have a bite of pizza once in a while. She was strict. We had a discussion about this, she and I. So she kept chronometer logs and she was very careful to be gluten-free. And for her, her liver enzymes finally, for the first time in years, dropped down to within lab range, which they went um, down into the 30s. So mm, that's and they awesome. were up in the, at times they were up in the hundreds prior to that. It was very scary for her. So Wow. Yeah, that's an awesome case study. Yeah. So, so you're saying you mentioned alcohol. So oh, people yeah, for sure. that would be actually the number one easiest thing for people. To, well, no, I say that <laughs> the easiest in concept for people to do is to eliminate alcohol and that would improve their liver function. But a lot of people have a lot of trouble because they're very habituated to consuming alcohol every day and they find it hard to give it up. Yeah. I feel like in, in my um, community of friends, it's just like normal to have multiple drinks with dinner or cocktails as you're making dinner. And I, I just, I am slightly concerned for all the people I love who have done that year after year after year. Yeah. I agree. And it's really hard. Okay. Now we're getting off a serious sidebar, but that's cool. Yes. Um, it's really hard that we, as either health practitioners or as just really educated, you know, healthy people, we can see these, that's going to, you're going to pay for that down the road. We can see these bad habits and we just cannot do anything about it because he's in charge of he and I'm in charge of me. And that's a really hard thing to accept. Um, you know, when in my clinical practice, the th shaming people doesn't work. No, it so, um, the thing that is, has, is the most effective, which still is not perfect is to ask people what their goals are and have them working towards goals that are important to them. So um, as medical clinicians, we call it MI, motivational interviewing. Yep. And so we ask them what their goals are, and then we might even ask them like 20 questions. I call it the 20 questions game with my clients. I said, now we're gonna do something called 20 questions, and it's gonna feel very irritating to you. <laughs> <laughs> but just stick with it because it's gonna bring up some good insights for you. And, you know, if you, if you ask, you know, 20 questions somewhere along the way, you may ask a question that for whatever reason hits a nerve and someone may start to cry. And I don't want to make my people cry, 
But it just goes to show you, like, if you get to that question, like, you know, you've hit something that's really special. That's like gold, you know? And so try and work with them around that issue. And that may help them to affect positive change. But, you know, we can't make anybody change. They have to, they have to do it. It has to come from within. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And shout out for motivational interviewing. My children which wish that I engage with them at all times with motivational interviewing, but I can't. <laughs> I have to just tell them what to do sometimes. <laughs> That's <all> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, we spent a long time on this slide, so we're going to move on. Here we go. All right. So in addition to the magical nutrients we just discussed, there are some special categories of food, and I'm highlighting three of them here. Foods that may antagonize thyroid activity. So foods that may mess up thyroid. All right. So here's the first category, cyogenic glucosides. Say what? All right. Those are cassava, lima beans, linseed, sorghum, and sweet potato. You say, well, why? What? I thought those were healthy foods. Well, here's the mechanism. We call it the mechanism of action. These cyogenic glucosides may be metabolized to thiocyanides And these may compete with iodine for uptake by the thyroid. So, you know, maybe this is a hypothesis. Maybe if somebody has plenty of iodine to spare, then these foods wouldn't be so damaging to them. But definitely if someone has iodine deficiency, probably these would compete pretty easily, pretty readily for those, for the, for the sites. Okay. All right. Next, number two, glucosinolates. Say what? All right, those are cruciferous vegetables, including, and this is interesting because you might know not might not know some of these are cruciferous: cabbage, kale, cauliflower, broccoli, turnips, rapeseed. So that's canola. Okay. So anyway, when eaten, when consumed raw, any of these cruciferous plants appear to have the strongest ill effect. By the way, radish goes in here too, um, and arugula. So, um, so the solution, my friends, because cruciferous vegetables are very good for you. They're important for detox. The solution is to consume your cruciferous veggies cooked. So whenever I make a little veggie tray to take somewhere, I either leave the broccoli off. I'm talking like a raw veggie tray. You're going to take like veggies. dip. I either leave the broccoli and the cauliflower off the tray or I will steam it first and cool it down and then put it on the tray. Okay, so whenever you're cooked, like, can you just blanch it for a second or? I don't know you... the answer to that. That would okay. be a really good research question. I am mm-hmm. very curious to know that. Mm-hmm. So if you happen to find that in the, in the literature, let me know. Pass okay. it on. <laughs> All right. So anyway, so that's that. Okay. So, and, and the mechanism here is that these glucosinolates may, again, may compete with iodine for uptake by the thyroid. All right, and finally, category three is called flavonoids. So those are soy and millet. Those include soy and millet, all right? Now, it, the researchers definitely found in this case that if you have enough iodine and enough selenium, you may counteract the risk of consuming soy and millet, flavonoids, okay? Um, and the mechanism here is that flavonoids may impair thyroid peroxidase, so that's TPO. So flavonoids may impair TPO activity. All right. So something to keep in mind and a really good reason to make sure you get enough iodine and selenium in your diet. All right. So 
that's what I got for you today. If you have any questions, um, you can visit my website, brainfood-nutrition.com. You can download the Brain Food Ladder for free if you join my mailing list. Um, if you think you'd like to do a consult, by all means, um, you know, watch my video, download the ladder, and then uh, after that, um, sign up for a free 15-minute uh, discovery call, and we can see if we're a good fit. So that's uh, that's what I got for you today. I'm going to stop sharing here if I can figure out how to stop. Let's see here. Where? There we go. Okay. Stop sharing. Okay. So that's it, Laurel. That was awesome. I have some takeaways for my own personal life, things that I'm going to start doing immediately. And um, I think this was super helpful. Also, because how many one in eight women have hypothyroidism? Mm -hmm. I feel like I know all of those women. Everybody <laughs> I know has hypothyroidism. Um, so many people, I feel like it's so common, um, probably maybe underdiagnosed, at, at least the, the subclinical piece. So thank you for all of that information. Really, really, really helpful. Um, gives people action steps to take on their own and gives information that they can take to their practitioner. Um, and one more time, how can people find you? Oh, brainfood-nutrition.com. Awesome. Angela, it's been fabulous spending time with you today. Thank you again. Thanks, Laura, for having me on your show. Mm -hmm.